Welcome back to the final episode of Improvisation for the Theater featuring my conversation with Becky Flechter. At the end of the last episode, Becky and I were discussing the games Viola Spolin includes in her book. Literally hundreds of games that can be used, modified, or adapted. We also cover a lot of ground including Lin-Manuel Miranda, Hamilton, The Founders, Rent, and Lorraine Hansberry. I hope you've become more familiar with Hansberry since the last episodes. She was a playwright and writer who was the first African-American female author to have a play on Broadway. Unfortunately, Hansberry passed away at the age of 34. Luckily for us, she gave us one of the greatest plays of the 20th century, A Raisin in the Sun. Thank you for returning to listen to the end of this conversation. And now, the third episode of Improvisation for the Theater featuring Becky Fleckner on Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast. Um, she breaks them down very, very well. Like, if you need a listening game, here's all the ones for listening. If you need, um, uh, what are the other uh, terms it's that like she uses? listening, where, who, what. Yeah, taste and smell. She does a whole thing so you can really embody like the whole uh, the whole situation. Oh, oh yeah, mirror exercise with her. I use that game a lot. I think just about every teacher, every theater teacher that's ever existed has done a, a mirror game at some point. That and zip zap zop are like the the standards. <laughs> you have to, right? It's funny. I actually uh, had to readjust because now we're teaching. I'm teaching theater over Zoom, which is yeah. an experience. Yeah. Um, and I'm particularly doing a, a four week class right now about character building for for young children. They're like six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have them do to not only stretch our face, uh, but to also to be able to like, so I can get a sense of like what their understanding of emotions are. Um, and what it, like, I have them do a mirroring game in the camera, uh, of like stretching out their face and everyone has to follow. And then I go through and I'm like, great. What emotions did we see? What did that look like? What did that look like? Just so I can meet them where they're at to be like, oh, so we can have an understanding. Because like what looks angry to one kid is going to look like frustration to another. And so when we actually are presenting it, I want them to be make sure that they are, you know, showing the emotion that they want to show. But anyway. Yeah. Do what you mean to do. Make sure that what you're communicating to the audience is what you mean to communicate, which or that you're communicating at all, which again is another... Uh, or actually, I don't know if we've talked about that yet. That That is a a point that she makes a lot, the communication with the audience and understanding that this group agreement that we talk about um, is not just the players on stage. It is it is the teacher, as we've talked about, but it's also the lighting person and the costumer and the stage manager and the audience. They are there to play with you. And you can't always assume that play means yeah, we're all going to have fun. Like Shannon was watching Lorraine Hansberry's play from National Theater called, uh, called Las Blancas, which I've never seen, but it's an unfinished work by Lorraine Hansberry, um, who is, if you don't know who she is, she is one of the greatest playwrights that's ever lived, but certainly one of the greatest playwrights of the 20th century in America. Um, Raisin in the Sun is arguably her most famous work, uh, but she has others that she done. She died very young. So, I mean, she was only like 34 
when she died, mm, which is mm. a complete tragedy, not just because she was 34, not only because she was 34, but also we lost a genius. Like she was, she was incredible. Um, but anyway, uh, this play, Las Blancas, Shannon was describing it to me and it sounds hard. Sounds like a hard play to watch. It sounds like an amazing play to do, a very poignant play, very important. But those actors up there, regardless of what's happening, are still playing. They are playing in an, what Spolin refers to as an objective stage reality. And that way the audience can get that communication. Um, so that's, so just, just know that when we say play, we don't just mean like we're all playing games and having fun. That extends to harder work. Mm -hmm. um, or more dramatic work, I guess you might want to say. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, and that also plays into, if we wanted to round it back out to how method acting is, is a joke, right? That is not, it, she's not saying that you are that person on stage. We're not saying that you are that person on stage. We're saying that you're playing a game. And, and even if that game is dramatic, those games do exist, right? That you're playing a game and you have to play by the rules of the reality for that moment. And then when that's done, those rules no longer exist. Right? Yes. But like you move past them. That's one that's wonderful. No, that's one that's wonderfully put. I'm so happy you put it that way. <laughs> um So so sorry. What uh, what were you about to say? Uh, I was going to say we did touch a little bit upon uh, we touched a little bit upon uh, the communication aspect of theater. Mm -hmm. Like and she keeps coming back to this. And it's funny because it did spark in me that the first thing I say in all my classes, right, all of my theater classes, uh, when I'm talking to uh, students, particularly about why we, we stretch, why do we, why do we stretch our bodies? Why do we warm up our voices? Why do we play a warm up game? We do this because in order to act on stage, we have to be in tune with our bodies, our minds and our hearts and our, our voices. Our voices, our minds, our bodies, and our hearts is what I always say. Um, and and it's because our number one goal, and I say to this every class, I mean, I've had students who have been in my class several times, and they're like, you say that every time. And I'm like, I know, because it is the most important thing to me that the reason we are doing this is to communicate a story. And if we don't communicate that story, we didn't do our job. And that's yeah. the point. And yeah. we use we use all of we use all of it. We use our voice, we use our mind, we use our body, we use our hearts to do that. So dancers communicate their story solely through their body. Well, actors we get to and the, well their body and their minds, but then we get to add our voice in as actors. So all of those things need to be we need to be in tune with all those things in order for that to make sense. And that's I mean that's I think essentially what she's saying as well, right? Like this is all forms of communication. Mm -hmm. Acting uses theater uses all of the intelligences, right? So the 10 multiple intelligences on different levels. And if you haven't, uh, if you don't know about those, um, look them up because as a teacher, they'll just help you to be able to connect with um, how a student works. And it's all a spectrum. So like how, what, how a student learns best um, is going to be, uh, is gonna be clear in, in what their intelligence is. Um, and so, and so theater, I think, uses all of these multiple intelligences um, to help communicate to that student so that they can then communicate to, uh, to the, the audience. Again, I could talk about theater education until 
the end of time. Sorry, I was writing down um, 10 intelligences because, um, again, anything I can to help link people to this kind of information is going to be uh, is important because I'm not I'm not as familiar with that. Um, so I'm 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 going to look that up. Um, OK, great. Um, trying to think of everything we've covered. Um, a lot. <laughs> uh, we covered a lot. We, a lot. Um, we, we have. One thing I was going to say, uh, we you you mentioned it before with the ninety four points, uh, the like pointers and reminders that she has ninety five in uh, in first edition, ninety six in third edition. Uh, those those points and reminders for anybody who does get this book, I would recommend if you see the thickness of this book and you're like, I don't have time to read all this. Go to the pointers and reminders. The pointers and reminders are sort of a summary of the first couple of chapters. Um, and then you can use that to maybe go back if you don't understand something to get a better idea on things. So if you are a teacher, and I know there's so many teachers out there who do not have the time to do all this, uh, all this kind of legwork, uh, I, I recommend looking at those pointers and reminders and then um, uh, definitely looking into like workshop procedures if you want to learn more about how to present these games and, uh, uh, and work with the students in it. The side coaching, it, it, the side coaching, <laughs> the side coaching is interesting. Uh, some of the phrases that she has in the side coaching is a, are a little weird. Um, and yeah. when you see things that say, feel it with your elbow, you know, just, you read on a little bit further. She does address that, um, why she side coaches that way. Um, also, everything has an exclamation point after it, like she was yelling at the students, which I thought was just funny. Um, yeah. But the side coaching, uh, Becky, you said this before, that when you teach, you ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. The side coaching is it happens during the games to help uh, help the students with the problem that they're trying to solve the evaluation and point of observations that she has after each uh, game that's played are things that like the points of observation are sort of like for you as a teacher. And then the evaluation is kind of that group discussion. But that evaluation, she spends a lot of time asking questions. So it's an ability for students to really um, to really ask those questions and, and think about this mindset not just as a teacher, but also as an actor, questioning what has happened, what are you seeing? It's not good. It's not necessarily good. It's not necessarily bad because that's a judgment that doesn't really help you and it doesn't really help them. What did you see? What was communicated? Because you could say, see, hear, smell, I guess. Um, but Taste. <laughs> taste. Yeah. Um, maybe touch. Depend I've been to theater. I've been to shows where stuff is touched. But... Um, what was communicated. So think about it that way. And if it was communicated, was it communicated uh, in the way that maybe the actor wanted it to be communicated? If they did want it, why? Just ask yourself these questions because limiting it to the binary good and bad is not helping you. I promise you that right now. And as a... Sorry, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent. Um, no, I love it. As a person uh, who graduated from a grad school, just only speaking for, I'm not going to put words in Becky's mouth, but 
speaking for myself, I graduated from a graduate program, which I loved all the teachers. I learned a lot of stuff there. But I, like many graduate students from acting programs, walked out and thought that I knew the only way to act. And I was a total dick. Um, don't be like that. Just because I learned a certain technique, and I, it took me a little while um, to to come around to this, but just because I learned a certain technique, if I don't see that technique on stage does not mean that that person is a bad actor or that director is an idiot. It means that they did it a different way. And mm -hmm. when you open yourself up to that sort of thinking, you really open yourself up to new experiences and learning just like Spolin wants. <laughs> I got, I had to relate it back to Spolin somehow. <laughs> and we made a full circle. Full <laughs> circle. Um, well, well, um, since we've made, we have, we have talked uh, quite a bit, um, but I do. Oh, um, we, we talked about objective stage reality. Uh, this is just one thing I want to mention. And then I'm going to ask you um, if there's anything else you want to cover uh, in this book. So we, but we mentioned objective stage reality and you were talking about that. Um, this, I don't know how to ask this question in a better way, but do you think objective stage reality is something that we can really achieve nowadays? And I only ask that because so much of our artistic lives, uh, I'm thinking for people who are maybe a little more well-known than myself, um, but so, many, so much of our artistic lives are wrapped up in our personal lives. So how do you think that is something we can still like purely achieve for audiences nowadays? I think if you, well, see, now we're getting into, um, yeah, now we're getting into like what kind of actor they are, right? Um, so because there are a lot of actors out there um, who are pigeonholed into, and, and they're type actors, right? So they're, they're sent into like Drew Barrymore is somebody who comes into my mind. Um, I mean, she's a movie uh, actor, so that's a little bit different of a medium. Um, but she, a lot of people will just, see her in that one role, right? In that like romantic comedy, uh, leading lady kind of quirky role. Mm -hmm. I've had this discussion with my friends before where I like Drew Barrymore. I think that I, I watch her films and I'm like, yeah, that was fun. Thanks so much. You know what I mean? I don't walk away from that being like, wow, she's a, she's an Oscar winning actor. And like, she's, she's what it should be. Uh, I enjoy her for what she is. Do I think that that's, fair for her? God, no. I don't think that that's fair. And I don't know as if she is enabled to do a different role than what she's been given. Um, or at this point, it's just what she gets. And, and so therefore, she just goes with it. I, I also just don't know how that process works on that level, because I'm not that kind of actor. But I sure. think if an actor is, is um, if an actor is willing to to speak to the truth of that character, then yes, I think you can still have that reality. But um, it might be difficult if, if, especially if you played a character that has has gotten a lot of recognition. Um, I think of like Lin Manuel Miranda 
and Hamilton at this point, right? Sure. Like he is Hamilton. Like when you picture Alexander Hamilton in your head now, you picture Lynn Manuel, which is <laughs> ridiculous because that's not who Hamilton is. I am really interested in like 50 years to come across a kid who when I when he sees he or she or they see a picture of the actual Alexander Hamilton, I really want them to go like, wait, that's not Alexander Hamilton. Who's that guy? Who's that white dude? That's that can't be him. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like if Which there's is- a kid that grows up thinking that George Washington is black, that's gonna be amazing. That's gonna be amazing. I mean, I know it's not historically accurate, but it'll be like it's kind of a representation. Uh, uh, Hamilton just came out that we are recording this podcast around oh, yeah. the time Hamilton was out on Disney plus and, and it's I, now for the masses and we can all see for, it. Yeah. We don't have to pay $400 to see it, but the, um, the universality of these historical figures, some of whom were very problematic when you look back at them, but that's just their, that's their history. Yes. Did George Washington do some great stuff? Sure. Did he also own people? Yes. You have yes. to address that. But yeah. the 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 universality of these people by casting them outside of historical type is really boosted, I think, with that kind of idea. Like, can Thomas Jefferson be black? Well, in this show, he can. And you know what? It makes him a little more American in some ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's that's neither. That's anyway. Just just saying. In terms of objective stage reality, and maybe Hamilton is an example of that, because their objective stage reality, they went on, they came right away with their rule. They they made a rule that age. Because Lin Manuel Miranda was playing a 19 year old at the beginning, but right. age, uh, gender, I'm sure uh, there will be there will be productions where gender does not matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh no, in that production, gender didn't matter because they had women playing sh- soldiers, for sure, and that was not on the an ensemble open thing. level. Yeah, on the ensemble on the, level. On the on ensemble, the ensemble level. level. Yeah. But I I I would imagine that there are going to be female Hamiltons or non-binary Hamiltons. Um, but their rule at the beginning was um, skin color and age does not matter in this show. We do not care about it. Um, so get on board. And that's it's a it's a great rule to set up for the audience to go. Great. Now I'm not going to think about this anymore because I'm just going to I'm going to see it. So that's an object that. That is kind of an example of how objective stage reality could be reached in some ways. I mean, I think that it, it's a very good example of it, honestly, because I mean, just if you just look at the success of that musical uh, in and of itself, right? It, it is a musical of its uh, of its own era. Like it is, right. it is, it it did for Broadway what Broadway has been trying to do for itself for a long, long time. Not that like other Broadway musicals weren't important or big or whatever, and Broadway is a big thing, but like Hamilton took it to it really to a, a new level of it being a, a, a traditional or not a traditional, uh, far from traditional, excuse me, a, an original musical that hit the stage that wasn't Disney produced. Now, technically it is. Now, but. technically, because Disney owns everything, but, um, right. <laughs> but yes. And, and regardless of whether or not you like the show, because I know that's become a discussion uh, in the social media universe, but whether or not you 
uh, appreciate the the artistic aesthetic or you know you think the music is good or well in your opinion good or bad that is neither really here nor there in terms of how it changes the landscape i don't love oklahoma i don't love that show but i recognize that that show changed the way that musicals were made that changed broadway it changed musicals great i think pirates of penzance is ridiculous also a show that changed the way that musicals were made and 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 rent is the same thing like you have these tentpole shows that um crop up every i mean like 20 years or so um sure. which which is what you you need and uh i look forward to more and more um musicals that are inspired by the work of lin-manuel miranda who is a living genius and legend at 40 years old so although he looks like he's like 50 because he i don't think he sleeps i'm pretty sure that man does not sleep no he lives <laughs> off of i mean especially now he has like two small children he lives yeah. off of caffeine there's no way yeah. yeah but like but to to the point though is like the audience rate has to the audience obviously wants to agree with what's going on in front of them in Hamilton, particularly, right? Because it has been such a huge success. I mean, it has sold out for years now, right? Yeah. And and so the, and for those non-theater listeners who have made it this far in the podcast, let me tell you, <laughs> the fact that like, the fact that, that theaters on a regional scale, right? When the thing went on tour, when Hamilton finally went on tour, theaters on a regional scale, started tapping into, at least here in Philadelphia, started tapping into this idea that people had to buy whole season passes in order to get tickets to that one show because they knew that people were gonna come just for that one show. They wanted people to come to all their other shows as well. The fact that they learned to do that because the audience, I'm sure, so I, my father has not seen Hamilton yet and I'm sure the first thing out of his mouth when he, he calls me to talk to me about it is gonna be, well, why were they all why why weren't they white right that's going to be the first thing yeah. not not because my father is is not because my father is purposefully racist right <laughs> i think he's i think he is i think he is a subject obviously to his environment and his upbringing um but he uh, that's going to be his first question because he's used to theater having a representation of the story right and because it is alexander hamilton and george washington and thomas jefferson who were these white men he's gonna be like well why didn't they do that and my second my question to him is going to be did it matter at the end of the day did it matter because did you watch the whole thing still did you enjoy it did you like the music did it matter that they were white because ultimately you were if you if he watches the whole thing which i think he will i mean he might entirely prove me wrong from this theory because we haven't talked about it yet but if he watches the whole thing then you agreed as the audience, you agreed that that didn't matter. And you're a part of this reality. It's similar to how for us nowadays, now it took, you know, 400 years, but it's similar to how we can have a Hamlet that does not, it doesn't matter. It, it, the Hamlet can have any skin color. The Hamlet can be any gender nowadays, depending on what production you want to do. If you want to make it a thing, if you don't want to make it a thing, it doesn't matter because even though Hamilton deals with people who were historically white, the play itself, the musical itself, while it does address slavery here and there, that play is yeah. not about slavery. 
It's not about slavery. Um, maybe if it was about slavery, may, then maybe the um, you know skin color would be a thing, or maybe not. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe, it, maybe you could do a lot of different things with that. But mm-hmm. Hamlet is not about um, the color of, of someone's skin. Ham, Hamilton. It, uh, here and there, but the Hamilton himself, they they rarely address it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if they were doing, uh, r- well, we talked about it. If they were doing Raisin in the Sun, that the ca- the the casting of that is very important when it comes to skin color because right. that show deals with uh, racial tensions. So right. so that's. It's about the, you know, what does the show need? What does it demand? What does the objective stage reality need? Right. Full circle again. We've got like four circles. And also <laughs> double circle on that. What is yes. the story you're trying to communicate? And so if that's what you're communicating, then you need to make sure that all of those things are being are, are being well met yes. in order to truly communicate that story. There we go, right? That. So I do, so I guess I do see a little bit how like, her theory is used in rehearsal processes. Um, but yeah, I don't know if we're, we're going back to that. I don't know if, if, if the games in particular should be the main focus or, or whatever for her rehearsals. So it's, it's sure. you know, again, the theory is important. The theory is good. I, I, I will back the theory all day. Um, but I, I don't know if always in practice, if some things work or don't work. I think it's, I think it's safe to say, not just for her book, for probably for many of them, that it's more complicated than, it is on the page. Light reality yeah. is more complicated than what you're getting in the story because if she was going to talk about every single situation that was more difficult, then the book might have been a thousand pages long, and then nobody's going to read it. So right, exactly, exactly. You, you gotta you gotta experience it, and that's what theater's about. You you are experiencing these things, and you got to take a risk and um, realize that you're not gonna if you are coming at things from good faith and with the idea of creating an environment like we talked about before under Spolin's sort of uh, uh, theory, then you are not, like I said, going to break the kids <laughs> or break the actors um, right. if you are, if you're working in good faith and part of that group. Um, so that's, I think that's, that's one of the big lessons to take away from our discussion here. I mean, she doesn't really talk about that, but in terms of break, in terms of you know, like ruining the the actors, but um, we, I think we we can, we can walk away with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Now, uh, oh yeah, go oh, ahead. I was just going to say to 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 my first point of bringing up Lin Manuel though is like he is Hamilton, but also he is in Mary Poppins, and he did a great job as Mary Pop in Mary Poppins as well. You know what I mean? Like he, yeah. I think he is he is an example as well of an actor who can who can create their reality depending on what show they're doing, right? And I think that's important, so. Which probably goes to his ability to involve himself in the environment, work intuitively, or it could be, if we're gonna relate it to Spolin. I'm just, I'm not speaking for Lin-Manuel Miranda here. Um, sure, but Lin-Manuel sure. Miranda, if you wanna at me on this, please do so. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> I would rather you at me than Jared Leto. Um, but the, 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 uh, um, but if you look at it, it's theoretically possible that Lin-Manuel Miranda immerses, involves himself in the 
um, environment, let's say the objective stage environment, reality, to the point where he intuitively responds to what's happening. And in that, every moment is spontaneous and truthful. So that's something to, to shoot for. In a yeah. Lot of yeah. And all, all, all Spolin is saying is that these are the factors that she deems to be the most important when it comes to being able to act. Um, and and uh, her book is then outlining how she approaches bringing or guiding actors to be able to reach that level. Yes. Yeah. Or not even just actors, anyone, because she says anyone can act. So right. Anyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so... <laughs> we covered a lot, um, but I we do want to ask, is there okay. is there anything that I didn't ask you about, anything about the book that you wanted to mention or talk about uh, before we get nearer the end? I think so. I think that it's, it's I just want to highlight that, um, you know, because we did, we did talk a little bit about how her work might not necessarily uh, be the the first approach you should take with like underfunded schools or, um, you know, whatever. Uh, but she does talk very much about how terms matter in, in the book. Um, she's very careful to make sure that like she changed even um, uh, something to physicalization, right? So like it's not acting or, or not acting. It's not the acting that she changed. It's something else. Um, sorry, it's getting late. So now my mind is a little wishy-washy. That's okay. Um, Oh, so, uh, so she, um, she uses the term physicalization as uh, a way to describe material that's presented to students on a physical, nonverbal level, as opposed to an intellectual or psychological level, or approach. Um, so instead of like act it out, she says, go physicalize it. Um, because she finds that, that those terminology, that terminology makes the child think of it in a different way and it becomes less scary or high risk to say, you know, act it out. Um, instead, she says, uh, you know, you're going to physicalize it in this idea that you're going to put it in your body. Now, that's just to say, I don't know if that necessarily is the term that would be best for kids. Um, I use it sometimes, sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't, um, in my experience. Um, but I, that's to say that I think it's important that she, she has put time and energy and thought in 1963, right? Cause that's the version I'm reading in 1963, uh, she's put time and energy and thought into, um, what terms work and, and that language matters and how you side coach matters. And so, you know, you have to be, I think we said this at the top, even you have to be deliberate in in your approach to these things, um, just so that, you, I mean, again, you may not be the most authoritative person in the room, or you, you know, you should strive not to be, but you should be the person uh, who has the most deliberate intention of where the guidance is gonna go. And using the correct terminology to do that is important, which is why I think by the third edition as well, she's gone back in and changed it to, you know, he, she, and whatever. And if she were and alive today, she'd probably change it to a non-binary language like they or something like that, which yeah. is, which is, which is great. And that's, and that's something to be aware of in terms of, um, I, I th thank you so much for bringing that up because that's not the only term that she focuses on because in the third edition, while it wasn't only, uh, updating the, um, the gender language, gender specific language a little bit, uh, but she does update a few other terms 
point of concentration, she changes to focus in the third edition uh, because she thought that point of concentration suggested a, a set object. It was too narrow. So she wanted it to be focus. It's not like you're concentrating on one single point. Um, she originally was using the word relationship, um, but instead changed that to relation later on because relationship implies, she said, role-playing, which she, I mean, Spolin kind of hates role-playing and she says acting. She's like, she, she puts acting in quotes all the time. It's kind of hilarious. Um, and then instead of motivation, she, she uses integration. So motivation implied that you need a reason for everything. Um, mm -hmm. But integration was a, a better term for her. And, and that's something maybe as teachers, educators, as we continue on um, to revisit once in a while our own terminology to uh, see what can be more effective for, yeah. for our students. Well, I think, and I think, especially in our, especially in 2020, right? Like we are constantly right now readjusting and changing, and we are at such an unprecedented time right now in our industry that we get to say, hey, let's rewrite these things a little bit. Let's change the way that our industry works. Let's change the way that, uh, you know, we approach these things and the attitude that we have towards these things so that when we emerge out of this, we emerge like a phoenix, right? We, we rise from the ashes a little bit better than, than what we were when we came into it. And that's on, that's on a racial level. That's on a, a binary or a gender level. That's on, I mean, there are so many issues within our industry that need to be addressed that mm -hmm. like using it as, as an education tool uh, is great. And then we also on a professional level want to make sure that we um, on a professional level, make sure that we are, are adjusting with it. And I think that her approach to that and being able to say, you know, all of these things need to be adjusted and I'm constantly changing my language to fit the times and I'm constantly, because her goal, ultimately her objective is to reach the student, right? Or reach the actor. And so she, she can't, I mean, she's showing us and doing that, that she is willing to meet the actors where they're at or meet the students where they're at and to help again, guide them to, to the higher place. And I think that that is very important. And I think that that is, that is how you experience more of the world and how you experience more communities is like, it's, it's listening, right? It's just listening. Well, she put that thesis statement at the very beginning saying that anyone can learn theater. So if that means anyone, she was theoretically working towards making sure that it was everyone, that it was a universal approach, which she believed to be a universal approach. And that needs to be updated because, as she says herself, uh, communication changes. Yeah. And that leads into one of our most important questions on this uh -oh. podcast. Is this book still necessary for our 21st century actor training? I mean, I say yes. <laughs> I agree. I say yes, yes as well. There were, I mean, we talked about some of the weaknesses in the book and um, some of the uh, uh, some small problems here and there but I think overall this book is a pretty good source that can be used um, by just about anybody as as a reference you know hey yeah. maybe you write, maybe you read the book and you hate it well at least you know that now <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't see how you could, but I mean, that's just a biased opinion for me. No. But yeah. This is a great reference book. I would suggest this book going into anybody's um, library. Because even if you're somebody who is only interested in acting, you're like, I'm just an actor. That's all I want to do. You better be prepared to maybe teach one day in your life. And this book could be yeah. helpful. Or, you know, if you read this and you're like, well, I'm never really going to teach this stuff, but you find yourself in a workshop where somebody is using Spolin as their as the basis for their work, then that means that that's just one less obstacle for you. And you can get closer to um, cultivating your intuitive knowledge. Yeah. And I think also just as an actor, too, it's a good it's always good to have insight as to what your directors might be thinking. Um, and so I'm not saying that every director is going to read this. Uh, but if you come into the room ready to see it from their perspective as well, then you're already a step ahead of the game. Yeah, a big a big part of an actor's job. And I'm pretty sure I mentioned this on the last podcast episodes. But a big part of the actor's job is translating what a director is trying to tell you. Um, mm -hmm. Because a director, you're going to get a lot of directors who tell you a lot of weird stuff. And you have to be like, uh, I think they mean this. Let's try it. Um, and and sometimes you'll, you know, you'll think you know what they mean. You do it. And they're like, no. And then you're just like, all right, I'm just going to try. And then you do it. And they're like, brilliant. They're like, I don't know what I did. Whoops. Yeah, you're like, awesome, thanks so much. <laughs> I came in the room like the Kool-Aid man. I win. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, oh, well, Becky, thank you so much for being on today. I really, 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 really appreciate it. I always appreciate being able to spend some time with you. Um, and this is the part of the show where you get to do any shameless plugs that you might have or... Um, uh, lift up your own work, anything you got going on. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, thank you so much. This was super fun. And like, I kind of, the whole process from like having to reread the book a little bit and like everything, I was like, oh yeah, this is what it's like to be a theater student. I remember now. And we never <laughs> stop being students. So we should always do stuff like this. Like mm -hmm. you're, you're never not a student. Just like Spolin. Gross. We are gross. Oh, theater nerds. <laughs> oh, what a bunch of nerds. <laughs> um, but I will, I will shamelessly plug uh, right now because, um, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, the time this is being recorded, right? We are still in a pandemic um, and uh, COVID-19 has kind of ravaged our, our industry, uh, ravaged the world, but ravaged our industry as well. And um, we are in a, in a place of, of a holding pattern. Um, for a lot of stuff. Uh, some, some things are trying to move forward. Um, but that being said, um, uh, my partner and I have created uh, Artists in Place, which is basically, um, it's a Facebook platform um, that we are live streaming a, uh, a variety show every Sunday uh, with a bunch of different artists in there. We've had, uh, we've had actors, we've had musicians, we've had puppeteers, we've had uh, fine artists, we've had poets, uh, we've had comedians, we've had every kind of art form uh, that we can possibly get. Uh, hopefully, we're hoping for more. I want like a drag queen and like like burlesque or something. I don't know. Uh, but I would love to get a lot of more, uh, a lot more artists as well. Um, but we do a a two hour variety show 
every Sunday on Facebook, live streamed uh, through Zoom onto Facebook, uh, where artists get to present their work. And it's a donation-based show because during times of strife like this, a lot of artists are being asked to do uh, pro bono work. They're asked to help make sense of everything that's going on. They're asked to do work for charities. They're asked to raise funds for other people. That is all noble and wonderful and, and definitely something that our skill set allows us to do. Um, however, we still have bills to pay. And right now, our collective industries are suffering and non-existent. And because that is happening, uh, we are all unemployed. So all those people that you see on Hamilton, guess what? None of them have a job right now. Uh, and that goes from, from the actors, to the sound designers, to, to the set designers, to the choreographer, to all everyone who worked on that production is unemployed right now um, and has been for months. So we, uh, my partner and I have, have tried, created this platform to help put at least a couple of pennies in artist jobs. It's kind of like virtual busking and, and a, a new age vaudeville show. So yeah. And I have been on Artists in Place a couple of times, and I really appreciate the work that you and Jed are doing to um, <clears throat> to help support the artist community, especially here in Philadelphia. But you've got you've had people on from well outside the city as well. So that's yeah, we just awesome. had somebody um, from Canada, which was awesome. Uh, yes, Artists yeah. in Place has gone international. <laughs> we have. I was so pumped. She was great too. She was so good. That's um, but but yeah, so that is that. Yeah. Okay. Well, once again, Becky, this has been wonderful. I have super enjoyed talking to you about this book. Thank you so much for picking it so that I had an opportunity to learn something new. And I look forward to maybe having you back on another time. We could talk more Spolin or maybe another book one day. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd be happy to do that. Thanks for having me. Thank you, friends, for listening to the third episode in this three-part series covering Viola Spolin's book, Improvisation for the Theater. I hope you enjoyed listening just as much as I did talking about it with Becky. Just a little correction. Lorraine Hansberry's collected last plays is called Les Blancs, not Las Blancas. And a little reminder, too. Becky can be seen portraying Little Stone in Allen's Lane Theater's filmed production of Eurydice, directed by Shannon Hill. Shannon is a woman who is incredibly talented, hardworking, and for some reason decided to marry me. Well, that's it for Improvisation for the Theater, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in, and I look forward to you joining the conversation next time on Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast.